part 12. So the first five chapters of Romans are really talking about justification, right? What justification means. Um, we've gone through um, all are condemned, no matter what. No matter if you're Jew, no matter if you're Gentile, you are condemned under God's wrath and his condemnation. He provided a way out. He provided a provision, right? And so then Paul goes into a series of relationships, justification and Mosaic law, and he uses um, Abraham and David as examples of them being justified apart from the law. Not that the law is pointless or has no value. The law has great value, and the value of the law is to let you know that you are a lawbreaker, right? And by being a lawbreaker, it points you to the Messiah to say, I can't do it. What do I do? Can you help me, basically, right? Your need for a savior comes out of recognizing the unrighteousness that you are. Um, and so when you look, when the Gentile who doesn't have the law looks and sees general revelation, sees that there is a God, he is powerful, he controls all the things, your reasonable response should be, okay, now what, right? Who are you? What are you? What do I do? What's, what's that? That's, that's that light being given to you. Um, and so you are without excuse also, right? So then Paul goes to a series of arguments, justification in Abraham, justification in circumcision, justification in heirship, justification in faith, and then finally in, the, in this section, he's going, Paul's going to talk about, um, well, now that you know you're justified, what are the benefits or what are the results or what do you do with that now, right? Now what comes next? So we're still in justification and circumcision. Um, and he's making the point, what is Paul making the point about Abraham? I'll throw that out to you. Why is he using Abraham as an example of, of being righteous? By faith, right? And he, God attributed righteousness to him because what? What faith? What faith did he have? Well, he wasn't circumcised. Right. You know, his faith came first. So he didn't put his faith in a work. Right. What did he put his faith in? God's promise. Promise, right? So the, not even, well, not even well, just a... Dividing of the animals, right? So there is a ritual involved, and God, God Himself, in a yeah, in a smoking oven. It's a strange illustration, but a smoking oven. He goes through. So God Himself performs this ritual, puts Abraham asleep. So Abraham isn't even aware of this ritual per se, but God does this thing, like you said, restricting his behavior. The omnipotent, omniscient God says, I'm going to do this. So all the things I can do, I'm going to restrict my behavior to fulfill this promise, right? Nobody held him a gun to his head and said, you need to do this, or nobody. He does it on his own accord without Abraham's really awareness of what ritual took place, but it's a ritual nonetheless that God himself put himself through. But my question is, what did Abraham have faith in? Okay, so it's all on the faithfulness of God. So his faith is in the person of God, right? Not the promises, 
the promises are the result of the character of God being trustworthy, right? And so Paul is going to say that to us, that we'll see shortly, that where our faith is placed on the character of God, right? Not just on the work of Christ. The work of Christ was done on your behalf, but the faith is in the character of God fulfilling his faithfulness, those things. You see how it's a little different than just uh, believing the act is what is one thing. So believing in the act that it occurred is true, but your faith is in God doing it. Are we, are we kind of following that in the sense that we're talking about a personal God, not a formula, a mathematical formula where it's, oh, I do this, then this, this, and this. No, you're putting your faith in the character, the personhood of God to fulfill what he said he would do, right? Our faith is in a person, right? In the sense- Because he never saw it himself. Abraham. Abraham never saw it himself. Right, right. He never saw a nation or a land. Well, he believed God, right? So he believed, what, the promises, could have been anything. Promises could have been, I'm going to send, you know, uh, Haley's Common and I'm going to be riding on top of that and, you know, drop whatever. You know, any, a promise could have been anything, but the fact that he believed in the character of God and that God was true to his word and true to who he is, he's believing that no matter what, God is going to make it happen. God is going to do his word, right? Because apparently that, you know, you might, you might uh, speculate that he was saddened because he didn't have any kids at that age, right? And Sarah, and so that was a big deal for him. And so God went right to the core, basically, of who he was. Says, I'm going to put out of you a child. And he laughs, right? I mean, there's scripture where he almost mocks God and says, ha, you're going to make me 100 years old, have a kid? And Sarah, who's 90 years old, have a kid? Are oh, you got to be kidding me, you know, type of thing. And, but God says, do you believe, basically? And he says, I do. You know, but he did have that that struggle. So, so Abraham believed God. That belief in God, not just the promise, but the fact that God would make it happen. Right? He had because further in his story, he has God has him offer Isaac as a sacrifice. The one thing that he had to believe God's promises for, if we were to say that it was the object, if the, if we were to say the object of Abraham's faith was the fact that he'd have a child meaning the work that would be done then the very thing that god that very thing god says will go and sacrifice him right because it was really a god testing abraham do you have faith in the work or do you have faith in me right because even if you do sacrifice your son am i still going to fulfill the promises given to you do you believe that and he had to believe that, right? And that's why. So that's what Paul is basically saying, that a tremendous work is being done, th promises are being laid out, but what is the object of your faith? The object of Abraham's faith wasn't the Mosaic Law. It wasn't circumcision. It was actual, personal um, God in himself, right? The character of God. And so that, that's, that's, what, that's what we need to be putting our faith in, is not being saved from hell, not being, you know, a nice guy or whatever, not, you know, being accepted or whatever, but actually trusting that God himself is faithful and loyal, and he loved me personally enough, not enough, but he loved me to pay the price for me, right? I have to believe that his love is what prompted the work so that I could be saved, so that I could be justified, right? 
It is literally all about God's love for you personally. And that's, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Okay, so let's look at verse 11. Does anybody have any questions or comments about that? Right, right. Okay, so verse 11. I think we went a little bit over it. We'll just cover it again. So, summary verse 11. And he, uh, 411, chapter 4. 411, okay. yes, yes. And yes. he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then. He is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. Okay, so here we see that circumcision is more than just an act. It's a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Um, it was also a seal, right? So it's, it's an outward evidence of the righteousness of faith, but not the cause of it. Circumcision didn't give him righteousness. Circumcision was the evidence of him already being righteous, right? And Jared asked a good question, and I don't want to get too far into that tangent. Why circumcision, right? Um, and the only really opinion I would say is that God, in his omniscience, decided to uh, create man and woman in that order, right? In the sense that woman came from man, God holds man responsible. Even though Eve was de deceived, Adam willingly, willingly sinned, right? Eve was deceived. Adam loved, I, I, my opinion is, Adam loved Eve so much, she was such a, a completeness of him that he did not want to give her up, in a sense. And so he chose her over God, right? And he chose to be separated from God. And God charged Adam with that responsibility. And so he rebelled against God because he didn't want to give up uh, or, or didn't want the wrath of God to be on Eve without him, right? So there's a, God has implanted in man a responsibility for himself and for his wife and for his family, right? So scripture, we can make a case that it's the man's role is to hold himself responsible to God. The woman's role is to hold herself responsible to the man and the children are to hold themselves responsible to the, the parents, right? So if the man leads the woman away, it's on him, right? She has, she has a case that she can, a legal case, which we're talking about legal things, to God to say, the man whom I'm with led me astray, right? Or led me in a bad direction in a sense. And I believe that God would hold her uh, unaccountable for that, but hold the man responsible for that. So there's a very, very high duty that God gives to the man to be in communion with God so that you don't leave yourself, your family, or your wife and your children, right? That's sort of the hierarchy. Has nothing to do with quality or value of one being better or worse than the other. It's just that God made that order. And so he, God reckons the genealogy, the lineage, through the man's seed, right? So that's, you know, we still have that to this day. We carry the same last name. Generally, we carry the same last name as our fathers did, right? And their fathers and so forth. So, so why circumcision? I think that that's, that was an aspect to that, that circumcision was, you know, the, the, the most um, 
dearest thing that a man might be unique from a woman would be, and it's that, that act that is the sign and the seal of that responsibility to God, right? Now we don't circumcise, we are circumcised of the heart. We have a cardiac circumcision that both men and women have. Um, but I believe that that's, there's a, an aspect of that, that um, familial order to circumcision. Yeah, does that kind of make some kind of sense there? Anybody want to say anything about that? No? Okay. <laughs> well, I've been thinking, because that is a good why circumcision, because in our culture, it's a very unusual thing, you know, but in, and in, and I shouldn't say, because in that culture, it was very unusual too, right? And that was a very, that was really what separated them all. When we talked about last week, we, even in our culture, circumcise our young men for no good reason, right? We have no good reason to circumcise our boys other than because I, you know, the lady said that it's healthy or whatever, you know, it's, it's like, no, it's not. It's, so it's an interesting thing. So anyways, okay, good. Okay. Um, so Paul made the claim Abraham was righteous without circumcision before circumcision. Um, Abraham is the father of all who believe whether they're circumcised or not, right? Father Abraham, right? Um, so part of the Abrahamic covenant that Paul is talking that God and Abraham had was that in Genesis 12, 3, God told Abraham that you would be the father of the uncircumcised also, right? And he says, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, right? So God tells Abraham, you and all your seed, all your kids, men, men kids will be will be circumcised, and if they come into your home, they will be circumcised too. So he's creating already that Jewish nation without the Jews there, right? But God wasn't saying that every person should be circumcised, only you and your seed, right? And then those who come into your house, right? And so when a Jew, when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, he would have to be circumcised as, as an adult male, right? Or at whatever age he was at, so... Um, okay, so verse 12 explains how this sort of works. So read verse 12. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Right, so we are justified and we are made righteous by following Abraham's example, his footsteps, right? And the footsteps was having faith in the person of God that he will do whatever he says he's going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Justification is attained by faith because of God's grace, right? God's grace gives us justification. We believe that he has given us that justification. So the conclusion that Paul is saying is that Abraham is the father of all, and the father of all gave, was the first example of faith gives you justification, not any work. Yeah? Okay, so we move on to justification and heirship. This is the next four verses, 13 through 17. Um, 
and he's going to make the point that the promises of God were not as a result or were not er inherited through the Mosaic law. So read verse 13, if you would. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Okay, so God promised Abraham he'd inherit the world, right? All, all would be blessed by you, right? Um, not by you, but that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Um, so, Abraham would inherit the world. The promises of God also pertain to the land of Israel. So one day, Abraham has never received that inheritance, right? In his lifetime, he never saw the promised land. He never had any of that. He never realized being the father of all nations, that all nations would be blessed. And so one day, um, uh, I should take a step back. So will he get this promise through the Mosaic Law? Yeah, obviously the answer is no, because the Mosaic Law wasn't even around when he's there. So some, if God is promising that you will be the father of all nations, a land, see worldwide blessing, um, do the promises to Abraham, are they null and void? It's the promises to Abraham and to his children. It's to Abraham and to his children. So he hasn't realized it yet. So. Since he hasn't realized it yet, and we're putting our faith that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, there's a future point where Abraham will be in that role, right? Will receive that inheritance, right? There's a future point in the sense that he will be resurrected and he will inherit the promised land. And that time is this thousand year millennial reign of Christ, right? And so Abraham will be there with Christ as well, fulfilling the promises of God that he gave to him, right? Um, but his inheritance is independent of the Mosaic law. Um, it had nothing to do with him receiving that inheritance or receiving that promise because the law wasn't even there, right? Um, verse 14 connects it, so read verse 14 if you would. promise is worthless, right? So remember, Paul is sort of contrasting the rabbinic ideas at that time, the pharisaical idea at that time, that they were the ones who were going to receive the inheritance of the promises because they were the ones following the Mosaic law, right? That's what their, that's their idea, that because God gave us the law and we're following the law, we're the ones who are going to inherit the law, right? But Paul says, no. If that were the case, then what's the point of faith? If you, if you can follow the law to receive the, inher to receive the inheritance, what's the value of faith, right? What is faith, right? Because we, we already went over this, no person can fulfill the Mosaic law. Therefore, the promise would be null and void because nobody can fulfill the promise or nobody can fulfill the law, right? If you can't fulfill the law, then the promise is useless, right? But if faith is where righteousness is, that's where you get the promises from, right? So only Christ could fulfill the law, and he did fulfill the law. He, he, didn't, he just rendered it inoperative in a sense that he fulfilled it. He didn't say, no, this is dumb, we don't need it, get rid of it. He fulfilled it perfectly so that the law was satisfied to point out that there is a sin nature, that you are a sinner, 
and then he paid you know the, the whole propitiation the exchange we, we, we discussed that already so um, Paul is just ba basically making the case that if you could receive the promises of the covenant by the law faith doesn't need to be there but because you cannot fulfill the, the commandments of the law then it has to be by faith to receive the promises. Otherwise, the promise of God is nothing, right? We following that? Yeah. Um, and Paul, you know, is basically saying that's the character of God is His promises. And so, if we extrapolate in our mind that a promise won't be fulfilled because we can't keep the law, God's character is kind of deceptive, because He's telling you, "Oh, you'll receive this thing, even though you can't you can't obtain it by the law." Right? Do we get that, that point that Paul's making? No one can keep the law, therefore the law can't be the giver of the promise. Yeah? And so he's now going to go proof or show evidence that that's the case. So let's look at verses 15. And then because we'll look at... the law brings wrath. For the law works wrath. Right? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so the proof of the fact that you will not receive the promises of God by following the Mosaic law is that the law works wrath, not works blessings, mm -hmm. right? So just to kind of summarize briefly here, the sin nature of all of us that we received from Adam, that we inherited from Adam, has a base of operation to accuse you basically, right? If there were no law at all, people would still be guilty of sin, right? The sin nature was inherited to us. Um, but in the case of the Jewish people, the sin nature had the base of operation to, in the law to accuse you even more, right? To, to make you aware of the righteousness of God and your unrighteousness, right? So the law was there to expose or to shine a light on what is sin, right? It's, it's a tool to recognize you to wake up to what re reality is, right? Um, so to the Jewish people, the sin nature used the Mosaic law to expose themselves, basically, right? When, and, and we can even say that to ourselves, but when the law says, you shall do this, your sin nature says, uh-uh, I don't want to do that, right? I'm not going to do that. And when the law says, you shall not do this, you say, oh yeah, I'm going to do that, you know? It's like yeah. we talk about when you see a sign on the grass that says, don't walk on the grass, you know? Your nature's like, you know, yeah. you're like, oh, let me see if I can... See what that say feels like. Why can't I walk on the grass? You know, you want to know. And so uh, the law was used by the sin nature as a base to cause people to sin more. Remember we kind of went over that? Is this a reason? If, God's if God is glorified by you sinning more, should you sin more, right? And he says, no, that may never be. But nonetheless, that shows God's glory. So the... The proper response to this difficultiness is in the sense that trying to follow the law to achieve righteousness frustrates you because you want to be good, right? We have this, this drive to do good, be good, have confidence that God is pleased with us and all these things by doing things, actions, right? Because we love to compare ourselves to other people, right? We say, well, I'm good compared to that one and that one and that one and that one, but the law doesn't care about that, right? Um, so the law works wrath because you cannot follow it perfectly. So you're frustrated with it, right? You're, you're, you, you know, that's what I mean. It, it pushes you 
to have to find something else because it doesn't satisfy you. The law, abiding the law does not satisfy your desire to be righteous with the Lord, right? To be in communion with the Lord. And that's the nature that he's put in. That's when he says you're made in the image of God, we have, an, we have a desire to be holy and just and loving because we're made in his image. We will discuss this in chapter 7 also much more, but that's kind of where Paul is throwing it out there right now. So in 15b he says, but where there is no law, neither is there transgression. So there's a difference between transgression and sin. Um, the Greek term for transgression is parabasis, and it means overstepping, deviation, or going to a side. Um, so I said transgression is a form of sin, so sin, sin can be defined as anything that goes against God's righteousness, right? Missing the mark, whatever. If God's perfection is the center, anything outside of the center is a sin, right? Just that's what it is. Um, and your sin is always present, even if you aren't aware that you are sinning, right? We are all sinners, whether we even know it or not, right? Transgression, on the other hand, is, is being a, aware of sin and yet doing it anyways in a sense right like the law exposes or shines a light well you still want to do it or you still will do it right um so it's a specific law that was broken that was broken right so if there's no law there's no transgression meaning that there's no awareness that you broke it transgression is the awareness that you broke a specific law the law will bring transgression because it makes you aware that this is the right way to go, the rightness, right? The righteousness. Um, so that, that is one of the reasons of the Mosaic law. It's to increase trans transgressions, right? To make you see that you are a sinner <laughs> more and more and more, right? And that's, that's what he's saying, right? So, um, where there is no law, there is no transgression. We have a law. We have a God's law written on our heart. We know of transgression, right? We used to get more and more in our culture all the time where you know, people, we live by a certain moral code, and I look at people, and they're just doing blatantly wrong things by my moral code yeah. all the time. But when I talk to them about it, like people at work or whatever, they just, you know, they just think about it. Yeah. Yeah. There's massive hypocrisy in our culture, right? In the sense that you yourself will say, you know, I, I, I may not have acted appropriately in this situation, and they're going to say, well, look at you. You call yourself a Christian. How is it that you can do anything? Be angry, be upset, be impatient, be anything like that, right? And the hypocrisy is that they have zero standard. You're trying to live by a standard, and you fail within the standard for sure. But without any standard, it's easy to throw rocks, right? Like, like oh, that's for you, not for me, you know. We so, were riding down the road to come to church this morning in an ambulance, and I pulled off to the side, and the ambulance was just by, and then you know, there's just kind of the ambulance spacious, and people get right in the tail of it and start riding. And uh, so, oh, you were asking somebody from the back seat. Said, hey, is that white car speeding following the ambulance? Well, I said that after the ambulance got away. 
what I, what I didn't say out loud, but what went through my mind is, we're all speed. <laughs> you know, like, is that one speed? We're all, so I'm looking at my speedometer, like, we're all speeding. Yeah, it's yeah. Not a, is, is that one going faster than the rest of us? He's, he's speeding more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the standard before, you know, I started going to church was, am I breaking, like, society's law? Mm -hmm. Like, is this against the law? No, it's not. I can, I can do all kinds of things and be legal. Yeah. But not, but then this, you know, you know, uh, the law is, you know, and it's always changing, right? Our societal uh, popular laws are changing, right? And I mean, you think about some of the things that are illegal. I mean, you can have an abortion, you can you smoke marijuana, you can do you can do whatever you want, really. Yeah. Mutilate your children. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, verse sixteen. Let's read verse sixteen because this will t kind of tie that in. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it for all their descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. Right. So, trying to get God's righteousness by works of the law or works of the culture or society or whatever always will end in utter failure, basically, right? The grace of God can only be obtained by faith, not by works of the law. This is the principle that, that guarantees the promises of God, that our receiving the promises of God is not dependent upon us working the law, right? If we could work the law to get God's righteousness, faith is without value. But because we cannot attain God's righteousness by working the law, faith has all the value, and it makes works completely, completely useless. I should, I might, maybe, you know, maybe qualify that. We do works of righteousness as a result of being justified, right? Uh, and like we're talking, Greg was talking about, James, it's a, it's a, a great relationship. It's not one or the other. It's not law or grace. It's that works come as a result of the grace you've already been given. It's a reasonable response, right? It's that sanctification process. Um, God's, God, so we said God makes promises. He subjects his future behavior to this promise. And the way that he delivers that promise is all based upon you believing that he does it. That's it, right? It's not based upon anything, whether you're circumcised, not circumcised, or whatever. The, the fulfillment of the promises to you are just, do you believe that I will fulfill the promise to you? Right? That's pretty dang amazing. It's pretty dang amazing. And that's it. And that, because, you know, there's no possible way that we could be anywhere near obtaining righteousness compared to God, right? No way. And it all comes from his abundant love for us. Coffee's done. Okay, so exercising faith to, the, between the Jew and the Gentile is the same. You exercise faith that God will fulfill the promises, not that anything you can do, right? God's promises to Abraham, he inherited by faith, and it's because of grace, not by law. 
17a, uh, in that it might be in quotes or parentheses, um, as it says, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. That's a quotation from Genesis 17:5. Um, it just affirms that God made promises to Abraham and it is now being fulfilled. It is now being fulfilled even though Abraham is not alive, but he will be resurrected to receive that inherited blessing, right? Because we're spiritual children of Abraham, because we believe God's promises, God's provision, we are spiritual children of Abraham because he was the first one to do that, basically, of mankind. Yeah? Okay, so let's get into justification and faith. Um, it's going to be on Abraham again, and it's, his faith is going to be described in five points. Um, if you'd read 17b... Right, so here's Paul is making that point I was kind of make, trying to make before that Abraham's faith was in God, not the promises, right? The God of power who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist, that's the faith that Abraham is putting his faith in, right? He's putting in that one, the one who is power, the one who calls things into existence that don't exist. The law is just a static thing that just brings death. But faith in the power of God, the one God who does these things, is where Abraham placed his faith in it, right? Um, this same powerful God has promised to us that we will one day be glorified, right? Although we're not yet glorified, we will one day be glorified. Although Abraham has not received the promises personally, one day he will receive the promises personally, right? Um, because God has committed himself to bringing into reality what he promised to Abraham and to us. Therefore, he can be trusted. That's, that's the whole point. We're, we're putting our faith in the person of God, the trustworthiness of God, the faithfulness of God, because he has the power to do it and the will to do it, and he committed himself to do it. Therefore, we that's all we got to do. We, by that, we have hope, right? That's what gives us hope that in spite of whatever's going on, we will receive those, those blessed blessings and promises because of him, not because of us, right? Um, okay, so let's read verse 18. Right, so the hope that he was talking about is the hope of having a child, right? Humanly speaking, there's no reason to believe that he would have a son. He just was too old, right? Um, it was impossible at their, their age to have children, and so yet God gave him hope because he believed in the character of God, um, and so that faith in God gave him hope that he would have child, right? Because how are you going to be the father of many nations if you can't have children, right? Then there's another description in verse 19. He 
So in spite of his circumstances, being 100 and she being 90 and she having the bareness of her womb, um, he believed, right? Um, so while his body was weak, his physical body was weak in the sense that he wasn't able to have children, his faith was not weak or weakened, right? Um, he believed that he could, God would carry out his promise regardless of what age that was. So Abraham had to believe that God could perform miracles in himself. This age decrepit body he was thinking, yet he believed that God could perform miracles. And then a fourth description of Abraham's faith is verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. So rather than succumbing to the unbelief, he looked forward, Abraham looked forward, uh, he faithfully looked forward to what God would do in his life, right? And he did not waver in that faith, and that shows that there was, there was not a mental struggle due to this unbelief. His faith remained firm, and he gave glory to God. And, and the fifth and final point is uh, in verse 21. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Right, so... Hebrews 11, now faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. It's the same concept here. Fully persuaded. That's logically convinced. That's not pie in the sky Santa Claus, right? Like, I like that word. Yours says persuaded. Others might say convinced, right? But that idea of persuasion means that it's a, it's a process of is this true? Is this not true? Do I believe this? Do I not believe this? And then after becoming fully convinced or fully persuaded, his faith was unwavering because he was logically convinced, right? You could, as children, we believe Santa Claus until we realize that's ridiculous, you know? We weren't fully convinced, but when you become fully convinced, we know that it is ridiculous, right? So he's fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, being, mean, meaning there was a, a process, I'm assuming, in Abraham that that would partake. So we are being fully convinced, fully persuaded by reading and studying and the illumination and inspiration of scriptures in our hearts and our minds are giving us that faith that pleases God, in, like Hebrews says. It's now faith is being sure of what you hope for, meaning that you're logically convinced. It's not just, my parents told me the... Bible teacher told me, the pastor said so, so therefore I am. No, it's you're logically, you're individually logically convinced of that. Okay, we will end there. Um, well, let me just say this. <laughs> that faith, being logically convinced or fully persuaded, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness in verse 22. So let's just end at 22, because 22 says, the reason that his faith was counted to him as righteous, because he was fully convinced. Mm -hmm. Yeah? That, that's what we need to be, fully persuaded, fully convinced, as your own person to God. God has no grandchildren, right? <laughs> We're, you're either a child of him or you're not. Your, your, your kids can't come along, your parents can't come along, your friends can't come along. They've got to be a child of God too, right? And they've got to be fully convinced and fully persuaded. Okay. <laughs> Any 
any any That, that brings a good point. So these five descriptions of Abraham's faith, if you didn't know anything about Abraham, if you didn't read Genesis, you would think, man, this guy is absolutely amazing, right? He, ha he had this faith. Nothing was going to waver him. Nothing was going to change his mind. He had fully convinced. But when you go back and read Genesis, you're like, hmm, that's not really how his life was, right? He himself laughed and he himself didn't believe. And like you said, Sarah brought Haggai and then they had another son. I mean, so it gets all conv convoluted. And yet... Paul is declaring Abraham to be the father of all righteousness, right? And so in the fact that when God declares you righteous, he's not accounting all your like, you know, undoubts and all your doubts and misgivings and shortcomings and all these things, right? right. If, if he were to write a story of your life, would he write all the good things? Because he would get rid of all the other things, right? He's declared you righteous, therefore, He's going to declare you righteous, you know? So it's an interesting thing that Paul leaves out a lot of Abraham's issues because he had a lot of issues too. He lied and did all kinds of stuff. His, right, right. Yeah, right. But he was, the purpose was deception. I mean, that's really what it was. So yes, that's, a, it's a very interesting thing. And, and we were talking about briefly that in the hall of faith, uh, lot is in there, right. right? And we're like, Lot? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? We're Lot, you know, and he's in there. And you're like, do you know what he was doing? You know, yeah. and so it's... Right, right. So it's when God says he declares you righteous, he's going to declare you righteous, even in even though you are unrighteous, right? And so... Jacob. Just following his <laughs> but he did, right? Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. And he did, but he was responsible himself because he was carrying the promise, not Rebecca, right? It's a, right. It's a very interesting. But, but the thing is, is that he 
waiting on God. If, if they would have, because the blessing was to Jacob, not to Esau. And, it, and, and um, his father, Isaac, was, was, was not even following because God told Isaac, you know, that it was going to go through Jacob. But yet he wanted to bless Esau with it. So he was not being, you know, obedient as well. But through all of that, God's hands still worked. And guess what? The deceiver was deceived also by his uncle. <laughs> yeah. But God still was pushing forward with his plan, and it, and it, and it came through. That despite all our fallenness, God's word still prevailed. And that's the amazing thing. Right. Oh. Right. Okay. Father God, we bow our hearts before you because you are faithful. Your promises are true. So we can have hope in the future. We have hope of just, we have trust in justification. We have belief in sanctification that is occurring. And we have hope in a future glorification, all because of your faithfulness, not because of our own. And Lord, we believe that. We trust that. We are logically convinced. We are, we are persuaded, fully persuaded. We believe, Lord, help us in our unbelief. Continue to grow in us faith, continue to grow us wisdom, discernment, understanding of your word. We look forward to applying it appropriately in our lives, and we ask for your guidance and your direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.